This podcast is sponsored by Ritbox, delivering ultimate human performance to you in a convenient monthly subscription box. Enter a chance to win today 10 free boxes, over $1,000 in value, and 10% of all Gritbox revenue goes to help inner city athletes achieve high performance. I am honored to have on the podcast today entrepreneur, mentor, teacher, high school basketball legend, basketball legend, Shea Cotton. Mr. Cotton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Coach Jack. Really excited to have you here. And before we kind of dig into your story and where you grew up and how you grew up and, and how you got here, uh, we just came from Castlemont High School where you spoke with the football team there. And I was just kind of, I'm curious, what are your thoughts kind of taken away from that experience and the impact you feel on them? Really excited um, about the kids uh, that's on that football team at Castlemont High School and what they're developing over there. Great group of guys, uh, great coaching staff, a great principal. I think their head is in the right direction. I think there's some promising talent on that roster. And I like to see those kids continue to uh, evolve and grow and be better uh, young men. Not just uh, student-athletes, so I want to definitely follow and track their uh, progress in their careers moving forward. That's exciting, and I could just feel the impact that that you had with them in your short talk, and then also just we do as coaches to try and get them to take initiative to, you know, go out um, take these for themselves, and a large number of them came up to you after to say how it impacted them, and that was really powerful. Yeah, I had a good time. I mean, I think um, I enjoy doing that because you can impact people instantly. It's different than, you know, if you're training hands-on on the court or, you know, obviously we have a documentary coming out, watching a film, you'll be impacted. But to actually be able to touch people and impact them with your story and, and you know, get them to engage by Q&A and stuff like that during the speaking is uh, always impactful. So it was good to see them uh, responding. Beautiful. So let's start from the jump. You recently turned 40? Correct. Okay. Congratulations. Thank Happy you. birthday. Thank you. So take us back. Where were you born? And kind of early years. What were the early years for Mr. Shea Cotton? Born in Los Angeles. Um, the early years, uh, spent some time growing up in the L.A. Harbor area by way of San Pedro and Long Beach. And uh, San Pedro was a port town. It's, it's known for its uh, longshoremen and obviously import-export with all the, um, the goods that come in there as well as all the other things you know, that the city offers, but uh, it's a mixed bag, uh, foreign influx, you, you know, Hispanic, black, obviously white population, some Asian, but uh, definitely a mixed bag, hardworking, blue collar type of town. Wasn't really a basketball hotbed. Me and my brother uh, set out to be two brothers that would be some of the biggest figures in the basketball world to ever come out of there. And we feel like we uh, accomplished our goal. And then how your brother is two, three years older than you? Correct. Two and a half. And how close were you guys growing up? Ah, uh, like frickin' frack. I mean, you know, we were right and left hand. We trained together. Uh, he was a few years older, so, you know, obviously wasn't able to play with him, except for in Slam and Jam. You know, when we went into high school and stuff like that, he was always ahead of me. You know, he was a senior when I was coming in, and he went into college when I was finishing up in high school. So we always missed each other. Hmm. And then when did you first pick up a basketball? First started playing ball uh, right around 11 and a half, 12 I took it serious, uh, started out in baseball, got bored with it, so decided to try something a little more active, and basketball was like right on time. You know, I had a gift. I really enjoyed it, soaked it up. You know, I was hungry to get better, and I, I watched film, I studied, and worked on my game countless hours as well as my body. How much time were you playing a day? Uh, between practice and my training, I probably say between four to five hours a day. You know, and then uh, the mental component, watching film and studying your opponents and studying past historians, people that played before you and taking a little bit about out of each person's game and incorporating it into yours and plus adding your flair to it as well. And how old were you when you started doing that? Right around 14, 15 years old. Yeah, I, I wanted to know who the best players were in front of me so I could pattern certain things within my career from them and make my life a little easier. Which is very impressive for someone 14, 15 to do that. And then why did you feel that was important? And where do you feel like you learned that skill to, to say, I want not only that I want to be great, but I recognize that doing the training and then also looking at great players before me as another way to improve is going to help me get there. Where, where do you feel like you learned that skill? 
I think um, growing up, you know, my, my father was a hard worker, blue collar. Um, my mother was was hard working as well. And, you know, they really focused on the service, you know, with their work. They, my father was in construction. My mother did all the administrative work and they were a great team. And it was the service from the customer, obviously, to the person providing the service, which was very important. And they, they prided themselves on integrity. And I think that's what, what I look for within my own self. So when it came to basketball, studying the game was imperative because if I wanted to be the best player, I needed to find the best players that came before me and see what made them the best. What did they do on the court that separated them from the other nine guys that was out there? And then you entered into freshman year basketball, and what was that like? We did things from jump. Did you come in and? Oh yeah, freshman year. Um, I started at St. John Bosco. I was playing with Jelani Gardner, who's a McDonald's All-American. Um, things weren't quite working out. It wasn't my bag of tea. There was a little bit of favoritism going on, and it just wasn't what I was looking for as far as the team concept. So I wound up transferring out early on because I already had a name coming in. I was pretty big in the AAU circuit already. Um, transferred to modern day, and it was like a match made in heaven because uh, the coach had followed me in, in middle school. He was familiar with me and my game. and My AAU coach and, and him uh, had history. My AAU coach used to coach at modern day previously before that and I used to watch them play when I was in middle school and I enjoyed the way they they approached the game the style of play the discipline you know and the players that had the ability to do extra they allowed them to do extra so I felt like it was a great fit and at 14 15 years old it would be easy to say that you were extraordinary in the game of basketball playing against other 14 and 15 year olds I I, I had a gift and I was advanced somebody alluded to it today after the speaking engagement that was before my time you know I think uh, it was meant for me to go through everything that I went through to help others moving forward and to set the tone for what excellence looks like from a young age and to really challenge people and I feel like I accomplished that whether people feel like I fell short of my endeavors or not it's not for anybody else to judge you know as long as I'm happy with my body of work and where my life is headed more importantly that's really all that matters because the ball is going to stop bouncing for everybody and you spent a couple years at Modern Day, won a couple California State championships. Correct. Transferred back to St. John Bosco. Correct. And finished high school career. Correct. And then what happened? I be I was a McDonald's All-American, wasn't able to play um, in the game because I was injured my senior year. I tore my shoulder, my left rotator, uh, tore the labrum, and I had to sit out my whole senior year. So uh, they took the, the invitation and said I wouldn't be able to play, but I was still honored as a McDonald's All-American. From there, I signed with uh, Verbally Committed, and my brother was there then. He decided to forego his uh, his last year and turn pro. We were having some financial difficulties within the family, and uh, he wanted to step up to the plate, so he turned pro. And I asked to be um, released from my commitment from the institution, Long Beach State, and they granted it. Opened up my recruiting process all over again. I was recruited by schools like Syracuse, UConn, UCLA, SC, UNLV, you know, all the majors, and chose to go to UCLA because in my mind, you know, that's a school I always wanted to go to. If I wasn't going to Long Beach State, I wanted to go to the, we call it the West Coast, North Carolina. I mean, the most national titles. UCLA is a powerhouse and it was a great fit for me. And I decided to go there. And at that time, I was going in there with Baron Davis and Earl Watson, and, you know, Rico Hines and Billy Knight and guys like that. So that, that was my next step. And that's where I landed from that point. And then what happened from there? Well, there was a big surprise. Uh, I went through freshman FSP, and UCLA's on a quarter system, so it's a different program from uh, state schools. Finished my summer school, and uh, my last day of class, one of the professors in one of my courses brought a newspaper to me, and the title was uh, Cotton's Test Scores Invalidated. So the NC2A invalidated it and, you know, for whatever reason, they, it was good for Long Beach State, but wasn't good for UCLA. So, you know, that's not something that I'm going to really cover. Obviously, there's a lot more of that in the documentary when people see my film, Manchild. Sure. But things happened that shouldn't have happened. And because of it, there was a rebirth within me. You know, my career from that point took a turn. Long story short, it was obviously out of my control. So I had to leave UCLA. They didn't take Prop 48s. And I wound up going to prep school back east in uh, Connecticut, St. Thomas More, and um, played there for a year, played well, averaged over 30 in the NEPSAC, and had, you know, had some good experiences, but it was tough. I mean, I went from playing at UCLA, which is in Beverly Hills, Westwood, and then you go back east to 
a school that's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. It's rural in Oakdale, Connecticut, in between stores, Connecticut, where UConn is, and Hartford. And it was just all books and basketball. Mm. Now, I'd already passed my tests, and you know, all my prerequisites were transferable, so I didn't really need core class credits. So it was just like a fifth year, more or less. So I used it you know, to mentally drive myself to get to that next level, play well enough, you know, obviously get recruited by UConn, who thought that I was going to stay in the state, which was close. But, you know, I was looking to make a different move. So I wound up um, signing with NC State and ACC and uh, was looking forward to that. They were basically saying I was the next best thing next to David Thompson, which was one of their, their best players ever to come through there. So they welcomed me with open arms and I was really excited about the experience. And, and that went in a different direction unexpectedly. So there was still heat on me, things out of my control. And uh, we've severed our ties, and I wound up going to Long Beach City College, coming back home to uh, Los Angeles. Played there one year, um, basically tore up the JUCO rankings. Uh, we went like 33-0 and before we lost the game, or 31-0, and whatever it was. And, you know, I was averaging like 30 a game. I mean, just I was killing me because I didn't care at that. I was already upset. Like, what am I even doing here? Like, why are they messing with me? I didn't even do anything. So sometimes you can be so good where you get penalized, and they try to, you know, prove a point. But with that being said, I learned a lot of fortitude and I learned a lot about myself, you know, what I really wanted out of life. So I utilized that year to just show people that they're not even on my level. And I went from Long Beach City College and signed a scholarship to the University of Alabama and the SEC. And then can you go a little bit deeper on what exactly did you do in that time at Long Beach City College where you were able to really dial in on, sounds like you figured out, took some time, this is who I am and and this is where I want to go. What was that process like? Just like, you know, being locked in, you know, being in the zone. I mean, I I went to class and studied and did what I needed to do there. I mean, I just had a one-track mind. I was just focused on doing what I needed to do so I can get out of there and get to where I needed to be at. And it was the mental component, you know, going home, still studying film, you know, watching games, you know, making sure all my work is done, going to the gym, getting extra reps, you know, just really putting the extra work in so I would be pretty much undeniable, you know, at that point on and off the court. I wanted to work on my professionalism and the body language and just show the separation so there was no doubt. And then you went to Alabama. Correct. And that is because a UCLA assistant got the gig there. Correct. Mark Godfrey got the job. He was coaching under Jim Herrick at UCLA who, you know, recruited me for some time and they followed me. They knew me since I was probably in the sixth grade. So they saw me for a good six years developing and and just really honing my skills and having my way. It felt like it was a great fit. It was a power conference in the SEC. Alabama was known to have rich tradition. You know, Antonio McDyess, Atrell Sprewell, Robert Orr, you know, Jason Caffey, you had Gerald Wallace, Mo Williams. For a school that's known for football, that's not bad. All those guys are first-round picks I mentioned. So I felt like I was right on time. Um, We had an agreement, and I held up my end of the bargain, and the coach didn't, long story short, and made my life hell that year on campus. But, you know, a lot of great people there. Um, I had a great experience outside of that, and I don't regret it. I mean, I did the best that I could. It just was one of those things. It was a 50-50 crapshoot, and I crapped out. And then what did the coach promise you that, or you felt like he promised you that? Just an opportunity for me to play my natural spot, which was the three. Okay. And that's something that didn't happen. You know, it changed after the preseason. Preseason, I was averaging close to 30 a game, and uh, the SEC conference time came around, and uh, we had a meeting, and, you know, uh, things changed. You know, and, and I made the most of a tough situation. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was sacrificed for, for other things. Everything happens in life for a reason. I think that was a true test of my fortitude because I was playing out of position and I was playing without plays being ran and stuff like that. And I still was this leading scorer on my team and, you know, all SEC second team. So that took some talent to do that and some drive as well. So, you know, I look at the positives of it and I just build off that. Why do you think it's important to make the most out of a tough situation? When you say you did that, how did you go about doing that? Like, what, what does that look like? I think it's important to make good out of the, the worst of situations because there's bad and the best of people and there's good and the worst of people. So in that situation for me, it was just kind of like, well, this is what it is. I'm here. I, you know, I worked my butt off and, and, and went around, you know, the horn for two years to finally get to the destination, even though it's not what I had envisioned. 
you know, I'm going to still do the best that I can. I'm going to come to practice, work hard. I'm going to train, do all the necessary things and, and go out there and show my ability. Even if plays aren't being ran and things aren't, you know, going as planned, I was just going to grind it out because that's the way I was raised. My father taught, you know, me work ethic and discipline from a young age. And, you you know, you give your best effort no matter what. And being hurt and being injured is two different things. Thing between the two and basically taking no nights off, playing and, and showing and proving. And, you know, I did that and it, with my hands tied. So that can't be taken away, stuff that I've done. You know, those uh, accolades are in the history books. And, you know, I went about it in that manner. And then in school, I took my education and, you know, I applied myself. I wanted to do the best I could to learn while I was there and, and make some contacts with some of my peers. But it made it hard when things weren't going well on the court. It really challenged me, you know, in the classroom as well. So I had to really lock in and, you know, just apply myself. And what were some of the challenges you faced within the classroom? Uh, you know, a lot of times just being tired from all the, you know, overworking of extra practice and, you know, long hours in, in, in study hall and different things like uh, midday individual workouts and stuff like that, plus 5.30 a.m. weight training sessions. You know, it just felt like I was tired all the time. So I had to really dig down and find that, that mental, emotional fortitude to get through the experience. And then do you feel like the tiredness and the energy levels that was from all this hard work, from this grind, from being a student athlete, and do you feel any of that was also from the expectations that were placed upon you? Most definitely. And I think just the, the time that I was in and the stuff that I was faced with, you know, being under attack with all that scrutiny and, you know, things being taken away that was just really, you know, not to my doing. I think some of that was weighing in directly as well, you know, so maybe I was a little bit more tired than my teammates, hmm. but I had, I had big shoulders, so I knew that I was carrying some weight. So it's like, well, okay, what's a little bit more weight when I'm already carrying the weight of the world? So, you know, I had, I was on a mission. I wanted to, to make my name, and, you know, my presence felt in that area of the country. You know, I'd never really been in the Alabama region outside of taking a visit down there and getting a feel for the, the school and the people and stuff like that in the campus. And my teammates were good people, but, you know, it was just one of those things when basketball's not going right, it kind of affects everything else. So I leaned on my folks a lot. I'd call home and talk to my mother and, you know, try to talk to my dad a little bit, talk to my brother when I could. And, you know, I had a girlfriend at that time, so I would I would communicate with her, you know, to get things off my chest so I didn't suppress things, you know, so I can continue to build and get better. One of the things that really attracts me to your story is the amount of external expectations that were placed on you and the, I guess, pre-created path that was placed upon you from when probably when you were 14, that you were going to go do this. Mm -hmm. You were going to lead your team to the state championship, which you did. You were going to become a McDonald's All-American, which you did. Mm -hmm. Then you were going to go to a top program. And when that happened, that mm -hmm. caused you to be a Prop 48 athlete. That's when your path started to diverge from all these expectations that were placed on you. So like mid-1990s, High school basketball, that's really, I feel like when it really started, I mean, you were a part of that. It yeah. really started to blow up in the United States. And I just want to get your thoughts on how you and then how young men, 17, 18, 19, 20, how do you, how much focus should be on those expectations? And then how do you create your own expectations of, you know, just because all these, these people who are older than me, may not necessarily be wiser than me, but older than me saying, this is your path, and you start to diverge off that path, how do you really create expectations for yourself on, you know, I'm still on path? Well, I think um, it's important that you don't get caught up in hype. You know, we always said, don't read your articles, you know, the newspaper write-ups and stuff like that, magazines. You know, just stick to the craft. Perfect your craft. Stay close to your family for the people that really want to see you successful and for the people that love you. Do it for those people because there's going to be enough challenges, enough adversity along the way that's going to try to take you off course, whether it be groupies, leeches, um, parasites, you know, agents, handlers, even family members, you know, sometimes loved ones, you know, girlfriends and things like that. You know, stuff happens, life hits you, you get tested. So as far as the, the hype is concerned and expectation, look, I knew I had a gift. I knew that I was special. And I knew that people was coming to see me play. When I was playing, the gym was sold out. Every game, it was packed. You know, standing room only. So, you know, when you're getting that in the seventh and eighth, sixth grade, you know you're on your way. 
And the most important thing is to stay locked in, finding that quiet place, finding that serenity, you know, going back to the basics, staying close to the Lord, praying every day, you know, meditating, doing the things that that help get you where you are and then building off that. You know, it's like a process, time management chart, you know, writing your goals down, working to attain them weekly, then following back on them, revising it making new ones because there's so many levels to attain, whether it's success, goals, you know, uh, stats, uh, championships, whatever it may be. People play the game for different reasons. I played the game because it was a way out for me. I played the game because I wanted to be the best. You know, and not only I want to be the best, but I want to make all my other four guys around me better. And I think that's the true sign of a of a star. Somebody that is a game changer, somebody's a, what they call a, a marquee player or something like that, you know, a franchise guy. Somebody that can make the other guys around him better and raise their levels, and that's going to come through consistently that you can depend on, and that's going to be the leader, your rock. I think that's really inspiring, and I think just this idea of sticking to your craft is a great life lesson to to live by for whether someone who is like in your position where it was super insane media attention or just someone just everyday joe on the street you know in terms of trying to navigate through life and when life throws stuff at him like he's saying just knuckle down stick with your craft and then uh also really inspiring just the amount of tools you were using in terms of like time management chart and writing down your goals and all these things like i think it's a great example of this is what's separating you and why you were able to accomplish what that's amazing and then alabama year finished and what happened alabama year finished with hardship uh, put my name in the hat for the draft. I was told I'd be a first-round uh, mid-late pick. I went undrafted. It was one of the toughest days of my life. Um, that night, just processing, you know, I broke down and cried, walked around my neighborhood and cried, you know, was asking God, you know, what, what did I do? You know, this is my trade-off after all the hard work, blood, sweat, equity, this is where we are. So I said, well, show me what's next. Woke up with a new attitude and said, well, if I'm not going to play in the NBA, I got to go get that other money. So we pursued other avenues. I went to the CBA. I was the last cut for the Sioux Falls Sky Force. The coach brought me in the office and said, you know, you're clearly good enough to start for us. We don't have room here. We got some returners that are fan favorites. We got to sell tickets. So, you know, we don't want to keep you here. It's not fair to you. So we're going to release you and let you go somewhere where you can play. And from there, I wound up going into Europe, uh, getting a contract with the KK Partizan in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, formerly, which is now Serbia. Vlade Divac owned the team and my agent, uh, Mark Fleischer at the time, represented him. So that was the tie-in. Went there and uh, that was my first experience in Europe tremendously. I was 20 years old, you know, in, in Eastern Europe, you know, shortly after they I got out of war and um, I tell you that first month month and a half was hell but once I got through that I mean it was it was a great experience because there are a lot of good people over there they welcomed me with open arms you know I got acclimated to the culture the cuisine even some of the language and uh and fine memories looking back as this process kind of happened from a five-year stretch from you being one of the top players in high school to being in Eastern Europe and playing there did you notice yourself did you feel like you were becoming a stronger more mentally resolved person in terms of you know this is my path I'm, I'm doing me and I'm doing just fine and did you kind of feel that there was times when I felt like okay I'm on my way I play and I play well but the problem in Europe is you know it's like they want to push their players so no matter how good the American players they want their local talent to to be like the star. So they're getting the extra passes, they're getting the extra shots, you know, things like that. So it made it hard at times, you know, I kind of dibbled back and forth and I really wanted to be in the NBA. So I had moments, you know, where I went through some depression at times when I was on the road, I'd be sleep extra hours and stuff like that. Then get home and just be holding on to the phone, like calling home, like, you know, I can't believe I'm still going through this. You know, I just want to get back to the NBA. I want to get to the States. I know I'm good enough to play there. What role do I got to take? What is what does that navigation look like? So, and I would beat that drum for a long time while I was still playing in Europe and, you know, try to put myself in the best position to get back. But it just never really seemed to pan out. It seemed like the more I tried to get closer to it, the further away it got. And then going back to kind of your, your personal brand as Manchild, you said that that really originated in this idea of I'm going to... I'm going to be bigger, stronger, faster than my opponent, but also I'm going to be more professional. I want to put the team first and do all the little things. 
And then how did you stick to your values with that when it sounds like you had stuff come at you when you were at UCLA that was against that? It sounds like the coach at Alabama was kind of against those kind of these values you set on how you should be in the basketball industry. And then Serbia, it sounds kind of the same thing of guys putting themselves first. Did you feel like you stuck to, I'm still going to be professional. I'm still going to do the little things to divulge off path. And if it did, were you able to stay on and, and why and how? I stayed focused and I, you know, I stayed consistent with you know my body of work and the process of how how I got to where I was you know it was challenging at times it, it made the game hard at times I didn't love it like I used to mm. you know it became really just a business it became like a contract you know okay I know I'm getting this money I just gotta last you're playing in Europe as an American at that time especially in that part of Europe it was tough man I mean fighting for your job every night you know they threatened to take your money cut money from you you lose a game we're gonna dock some pay good thing my agent obviously represented a guy that owned the team Vlade Divac my money was safe but you know they'd flirt with that they put that out there to try to mess with your head and maybe you have a a not so good game then they're telling you well you got one more game and if you can't get it together we're going to be bringing somebody else in so you know the european game is is a hustle too it's a you know it's a grind it's not as easy as people think but i was able to manage and i think it made me a better person long term because i went through a lot of those trials alone without family there without a girlfriend you know and your friends and stuff like that And then before we go too deep in your professional career, I want to ask you, so a lot of the way you're branded as kind of LeBron James, as LeBron was in high school pre-social media, and I want to know what your take is on how, if you had been in high school in 2018, how would things have been different? The media attention then was off the charts. I mean, I was basically a rock star with a traveling rock group then before social media so with social media i would have broke the internet so i mean where do you go from there i don't know i mean it's i guess number one pick you know deandre Aiden, the kid from arizona he comes on the scene and plays well in one year and gets drafted number one with seven feet tall i was six five Hmm. you know doing things that nobody else was doing and dunking on the center you know i mean in high school i dunked on kg like twice in a game in vegas and i was in summer school i was flown in just to play against him and paul pierce because they stacked their team Went in there and did my thing, had 38 points. We lost by, I think, like seven or eight points. If I got could have got a little bit more help, we would have won. But, you know, I did my part. So I was used to the pressure. I was used to the expectations. I embraced it, you know, and I think a lot of people have to be careful what they wish for because you just might get it and then what are you going to do? And more importantly, what are you going to become? Yeah, and I think the way how you always were doing the little things to maximize your potential as a player, then I'm guessing you would have been the same way on social media in terms of how you cultivate the brand. And so I believe it when you say you, you probably would be doing something pretty powerful with yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And then you, when did you start kind of finding your groove in your European career? I think it the last um, swing of it when I was finishing up, I think I found a groove in Central South America, playing in Venezuela, you know, getting used to that. It was a physical brand of basketball, but I had the green light to be able to explore my, you know, my talents. And I had a lot of big games over there and the fan base is good. You know, they're they're very high strung, you know, the, the Latin community. So it was interesting. You know, the, the weather was good. The food was good. You know, and the, my teammates were good guys. You know, yeah. we, we got to know each other and it became like a family thing. So I enjoyed those experiences playing in South America and playing in Dominican Republic and obviously finishing up in Mexico, but my European experiences were more in like Serbia, France, Italy, played a little bit in Greece, and uh, did a little bit in the Middle East as well, played in Iran. And do you feel like you were a better basketball player at 25 than you were at 20? I feel like I was more seasoned at 25. I feel like at 20, I had live legs, I was active, you know, the game was still uh, fresh to me. It wasn't really so much tainted but after going through the mill with all the experiences in college leading up to and then getting into the pro ranks and not playing in the nba just throwing me a bone so to speak and then in a way being downgraded and being unappreciated in my career like from the jobs that i was receiving it took a toll after a while and i started thinking about things i could do to make a bigger impact after basketball yeah your story got deep the wells start really dug in okay so you finish when did you decide to hang it up? Hang it up. Hung my sneakers up uh, playing basketball right around 30 years old. My daughter was born. My daughter, Chloe, is uh, nine and a half. She turns 10, actually, shortly here in July. So 
I wanted to be in her life. You know, that was more important than a contract at that point because I knew I could always make money, but I couldn't always be her father. You know, I, I, wasn't, no, I wasn't always going to be there, so I wanted to make an impact and her to know that she could depend on me and I could watch her grow to support her and, and love her at the same time. And then closing the book on your actual playing career of basketball, looking back to the whole gauntlet, what do you feel like you did really well? well let me ask that first. Like Throughout this entire process of these enormous expectations placed upon you. What do you feel like you went really well through that entire process? I feel like I, I lived up to the expectation and exceeded it in a lot of other ways. And I was consistent. You know, my team depended on me and I came through. And because of it, I made everybody around me better. And we won a lot of games. We had a great experience. And the coaches that I played for made a lot of money. You know, I didn't see none of it. And, and today's a different day for me. I'm grown and I have the, the information with the experience. And it was meant for me to give back to the youth. And that's why I'm in this space now with this film coming out man child and being on this podcast talking about my life story and these experiences to help others so they don't have to go through the same thing how do you feel how to stay focused we talked earlier about this idea of tunnel vision in era of distraction and you know to really compete in high performance you need to be able to be locked in in the zone be able to focus and you were able to do that exponentially larger level in terms of distraction how do you think you were able to do that well, it comes back to the, my upbringing. I think my parents did a really good job keeping me grounded at home. I took the trash out, you know. Um, me and my brother was constantly testing each other. We had a court in the backyard. We'd be out there at night shooting in the dark just to test our, our range, to test our, you know, our ability and the confidence. And I had an older brother that pushed me, and he was tough on me. You know, you know he was one of the best defenders in the Big West before he got drafted and the leading scorer on his team and broke records at Long Beach State. So, you know, I had something that, that drove me besides my own endeavors, my own, you know, goals and dreams. I had my brother in front of me and seeing things that he was doing that I could learn from and build off to be better. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the integrity that was instilled in me as a kid, you know, working with my father doing construction, me and my brother in 105 five degree weather in the summer at that time in the early 90s you know our day started at 6 30 in the morning we got to be at the job site at 7 30 we clocking in five hours and we got to go home and shower and put on our basketball uniform and sneakers and go to a tournament and play mm. you know that created a different level of toughness and uh, hunger and then once that the books closed on your playing career what, what was the next step for you after i finished playing i personally i knew in my heart i wanted to help people you know and professionally i wanted to do something and be very successful and separate myself from the masses and you feel like you're doing that? Most definitely. I think uh, the Manchild documentary is is something that everybody needs to see. Um, it'll be available here shortly. We're going to do a lot of premiere screenings, you know, nationwide on a Manchild tour. Uh, we got a screening coming up August 12th. We're going to be doing it at, at the Warner Grand Theater in downtown San Pedro. So uh, we'll have pre-sale tickets available on a link pretty soon. And um, it's going to be something to look forward to. It holds 1,500 people. We have ABC7 um, committed to come. Rob Fukazaki and I've got Keon Doolin uh, verbally committed from the Los Angeles Clippers formerly, as well as the Boston Celtics and some other notable names and faces. So it's going to be a fun night. You know, kids, family, we want everybody to come out because it's going to impact kids as well as adults and everybody in between. And then what do you feel like the biggest impact is going to be? The story itself, I think it's it's just going to hit the hearts of people because it's not what you expect. It's a lot more. It's not just about basketball. It's a humanitarian story. So it crosses all, all borders. And one of the things that really connects, I connect with you is you talk a lot about the importance of taking time uh, by yourself mm -hmm. away from the distractions and away from other people's expectations and away from other people wanting you. Could you talk about when you recognized the importance of that and then kind of how you go about that now? I think I recognize the importance of the self-mastering and, and just really spending that time and finding that serenity and that, that quiet place, I like to call it. I'd say I really dove into it in the last four years because I've been through so much with my father passing and finishing up the film and seeing the separation and dissension within my family when I thought it would bring us closer together. I had to call on the Lord, you know, my creator and look for something more special because everything that I thought was wasn't what is isn't, you know, so it's it was kind of like, what world is this? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I was looking around like, well, I got to turn to God because only he can give me the answers because everything I thought was going to happen didn't and people I thought was going to be supportive aren't. So where do you go from here? 
Well, that's when I decided to start spending more time reading my Bible, spending more time in meditation and pulling on things that could, you know, that could lift me up and refresh me because I've been there for so many people, whether it's entertaining them with the way I played or being there as a friend, whenever I could helping people, you know, I take, I give you the shirt off my back. And these wiser set of eyes saw all of this in a way it was different. I think my approach to things in my life, um, the patience that was developed, the understanding, um, the empathy, as well as compassion, and uh, the fortitude, as well as the drive that, that was instilled through all the adversity that is unmatched. You know, I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to stop. There's no end game. The end game is when my heart stops beating. Hmm. And then man child's going to live on even after I'm dead. So I've already impacted numerous lives across the country, not just in California. So, And you know what? That's worth more than money to me. It's more special than any monetary gain because when you give from yourself to make others better, there's no better feeling. You know, and all the monetary things, they come when you do that and do it well and you master that. And then you use this word fortitude. And when we were talking at once earlier, I talked about like America loves to build people up. They love it more, even more to tear people down. And then they love even more, yeah, the comeback basically. And the new growth and the comeback comes is through fortitude, right? So how would you define that word? I would define fortitude as believe in yourself when no one else does. Things that come across your path that are the adverse reaction of where you want to go, you have a decision to make. Either you, you fall victim or you dig in and find a solution, find a way out to meet your goal, find a way to be successful. You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Fortitude has a lot to do with this other word that I use, resilience. You know, it's very similar. I mean, it's being consistent, being successful under extreme conditions as well as pressure. Yeah. You know, and I tell people about one word called character and all that intertwines. And character is what you do when no one's watching. And I think of what you just said and like the importance I put in terms of spending every day working to build skills, to train, to build relationships, because then when that time comes, then you have a foundational skill set to draw on to get that belief that I can do this. I can climb out of that. 100%. That's that mental, emotional muscle that has to be exercised and and mastered. I think uh, if you don't control your emotions, they will control you. And that's very important in life, not just in sport. You see a lot of people that lose their cool on the court in heated games and stuff like that. Physical elbows are thrown, this, that, and the third, and maybe a punch is thrown. Well, those are guys that are losing their cool and they're going to feel in their checkbook. So there's always a cause and effect. But if you can master the mental and the emotional muscle, you're going to go a long ways in life and you'll surpass a lot of your peers because a lot of people react off of emotion Hmm. rather than controlling it. That's beautiful. If I'm someone that wants to develop more fortitude in my life, what is like a day-to-day practice I could do to start to to build that mental and emotional muscle you feel? Things like uh, meditation, um, staying close to, you know, your, your spiritual beliefs and spending time with whom you believe in, as well as doing different practices, uh, putting yourself under extreme conditions, whether it's the training, you know, if you like to work out, doing different things, add resistance in your training, put your body and your mind in positions it's never been in where you force yourself to grow. We can't grow unless we're stretched, you know, and that's not just in training, it's in life. So whenever you're faced with adversity, meet it head on, find a way to get the job done and be successful. Don't look for excuses. Don't look to point blank, go within. And then going back, we're going to do a little decade question run through here. So in your team, what was the best moment of your teens? What was the highlight? Highlight of my teens, winning a state title in 1995, Oakland Coliseum beating L.A. Fremont, becoming the state player of the year, sophomore. Never been done since. And you felt the power of that because of the accomplishment and it's never been done before. Yeah, and, and you know, I felt like I was on top of the world. I mean, I had Northern California rooting for me too, and I beat a powerhouse in Fremont at that time with our team, Modern Day. And, you know, I was on top of the world. I mean, Sports Illustrated had did a, a four-page layout on me. You know, I was going to Nike camp three years in a row. I mean, my teammates, it was we were like a family. You know, and that's probably my most memorable time because that's when basketball was at a pure state for me. Worst moment of your teens that decade? Worst moment of my teens would probably be when my best friend was murdered, my friend Junkyard at 15. Quick, so you already have to 
deal with all this extra attention and stuff at 15 that just most 15 year olds would have a very challenging time dealing with just because there's not enough life experience to deal with all the stuff that's coming at them right and this was put on top of that and how did you take that and then do you feel like you were able to properly grieve through that or do you feel like 15 was like yeah. you were in the middle of the tornado yeah did, did the tornado just keep spinning it did it kept spinning and you know he was in my heart still in my heart you know i think it's a tragedy and that's why i instill in the kids decision making mm. and choices we have you know making the right choices surround yourself with the right people but to you know to answer your question it just made me buckle down and really take my life more serious and realize that you know, we all have choices. And if I make the right ones, I put myself in a better position in my life. And I can improve my life and my family's life. And if I don't, I could be right where my, my homeboy was, junkyard that they murdered. So for me, it hurt me and it strengthened me at the same time. It made me wiser. And I wasn't a kid anymore at that point. I had wisdom beyond my years because of the pressure, because of the position that I was in, because of all of the things that I was being faced with, everything that was being thrown at me. And I couldn't make a mistake. Highlight of your 20s, personally or professionally? In my 20s, I think I started to see the game as a business. I started to see everybody that looked at me as a, a commodity, you know, rather than an individual. And I would often ask my mother, do people like me for what I do or for who I am? Well, I have my answer now, and it's the first one. And I think the kids like the latter. They like me for who I am. When I talk to kids, you know, it's the conviction. It's what they feel that's real. That's why I can get through to them because I've been where they're already trying to go. And a lot of them will never accomplish what I've done. Below the NBA, I've covered everything else. So you can't take that from me. And a lot of my peers went on and made a bunch of money at that time. And I feel like my life is, is just beginning. Like this is a rebirth. How are your 30s? Number one. New me. Just a whole new me. Um, the mentality, the focus, a business, a brand, like uh, philanthropy, paying it forward, just wanting to leave a legacy, you know, wanting to impact and inspire people on another level with an undying commitment like never before. And, you know, wanting to be somebody that my daughter could be proud about, you know, her father and opening up doors for her and just helping enough people where ultimately God would bless me with my heart desires before I close my eyes and be able to help my family take care of them. And then low point in your 30s? My father passing because he was the rock. And when he passed away, it was kind of like, okay, playtime is over. It's just, it's on me and my brother now, you know, and I feel like more so me now than him because I was given the insight because I sought it out and, and I still seek it today every day. I think that's what makes me different from a lot of people. I wake up starving for that, that knowledge, that information. You know, I'm never going to quit. It's never going to get old. Somebody asked me, well, what's my end game the other day? I said, my end game is man child living on forever. So there really is no end game. You know, every day it's a new goal, um, something else, a, a new idea, you know, a new innovation, creativity to, to help the brand, to help the film, to ultimately help the kids, the youth, to help inspire parents, to educate them so they can make smarter decisions. And these kids don't fall victim, you know, and get railroaded. Are there any particular conversations that come to mind that you had with your dad over that this kind of tumultuous stretch between 18 and 22 that really it felt like when you got off the phone? He was it, a man of few words. My mm. mother was, was the one that did more communicating with me, more jovial in that way. My father, uh, like E.F. Hutton, when he talked, you listen. He just told me, he said, son, you know, you got the same blood running through you that I have, and we don't know what quit is. So no matter how hard it gets, you find a way. And I took that to heart. And I thought about all the days that I spent on the job sites doing construction, and, you know, and heavy lifting and, and extreme temperatures and wearing combat boots and, I mean, really getting in there doing work. It made me appreciate basketball. It made me look at the adversity differently because I knew there was another side to life where it could get real hard. You know, it's something that you could almost hate doing. I took that and channeled that and harnessed that in a good way and it displayed that on the basketball court. Yeah, that's amazing. And then just to put some context in those questions about highlight and low light of each decade is that kind of your life in the public eye, it like drops off at 21, right? Until you started to tactically try and reinvent yourself in the brand. I'm trying to get across those questions is that when you were supposedly when high, when things were really good, you know, 
16, 17, you were still experiencing life. You had your best friend get killed and you were still going through highs and woes. And then once you disappear off the public eye, it's not you walking around with, with your head down and just waiting for to die, right? It's right. getting after it. You're still building skills. You're still going after self-mastery. So it's just this life goes on, right? It goes on no matter what we're doing. How are we spending our time? How are we spending our day? And recognizing that just because my day is not in the spotlight anymore, by no means does that make it less important, right? 100%. I think more valuable now because I'm not that they see. I'm a different commodity now. This body's a shell. What's inside is what's different. And that's what that process is about. That's what that self-mastering, that self-help, you know, really taking the time to find that peace and that solace and dealing with that serenity and staying in that place. Because I think we all go through things in life where we have to find some stillness. Because if you don't, chaos can lead to suicide. It can lead to a heart attack, a stroke, you know, things that could take you away from this place. So it's important that we take time out to find out who we are and what we enjoy. You know, along the way, no matter what we do for a living, it just so happened I had a gift and I entertain a lot of people, but I have a lot of other gifts too. And I want the world to see those. And part of it is this, this documentary, Man Child. And then with, we already mentioned we were at Castamont earlier. So kids from the inner city, athletes in general, overall, young males, especially I would say kids from the inner city, they have a hard time resonating with words like self-help, meditating. Why is that important? And then what kind of language would you use, would you engage in, with them in that kind of language or how would you go about that? If I'm you're 17, 18, you see, you can see the benefit of applying this stuff. How would you communicate that to a you know, 17, 18 year old? You got to spoon feed them. You know, I think um, you can't give it to them all at once. It's too much to, to ingest. I mean, I think for me, it came to me little by little. You know, it didn't just wasn't just thrown on my plate, but I think I would, you know, break it down in layman's terms and make it real for him and say, listen, you got all this stuff. If it's not handled right, equate to madness, to chaos. So how do you manage and be able to compartmentalize better? You got to find that quiet place that goes to being in a meditative state that goes to different things like waking up, listening to motivational videos, motivational speakers, guys like Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, you know, Zig Ziglar. I mean, these are big time speakers worldwide. You know, these people have stories. They've been through adversity. They didn't just wake up and sitting on a bed of money. They earn their keep, you know, and they have stories that they that they talk about and they revert back to scripture and things like that in their message. So it's called the good book for a reason. I tell people to rely on that faith because when you don't have nothing else, you got your faith. If it's real, you can't touch it. You can't see it. It's something you know, and it's a practice. It's a lot like character. It's what you do when nobody's watching. So those are building blocks and intangibles that are necessary in life. And that's how I would relay it to a 17, 18-year-old kid. You want to be successful. Focus on good habits every day when nobody's watching, and then build from there. And watch what happens. Yeah. All those guys you mentioned, like the motivation industry is another industry that I feel it's like it's jaded a little bit. Right. But at least with all of those guys you mentioned, it's not just the, okay, I just got done listening to a Tony Robbins or Jim Rome or Les Brown video or something. It's like these guys are also providing powerful tools. Right that you can apply. Yeah, it's not just getting pumped up. It's it's applying tools that are going to make me better. Yeah, I mean, the guy like Les Brown, I love him. He cracks jokes. I mean, he makes it real. He tells you. I was born on a, uh, on a floor in an abandoned building, you know, in Liberty City, Miami. You know, he was labeled educable, mentally retarded at three years old. And then he, very little college education, worked himself into a position now where he's on the largest platforms, speaking for Procter & Gamble, you know, big time companies. He believed in himself. He sought the information, okay? He worked, he studied. He honed the skills, went to the classes, and got better. And guess what? It paid off. Anybody can do it. You believe in yourself when no one else does, and you want something bad enough, you're going to get here. You're going to get close to it. Die trying. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. I really agree with the spoon feed them. And then like we were talking a little bit earlier, of like no matter where you are on your journey, if it's like this is something just... I want to live at high performance. I want to go after self-mastery. Like You can't shortcut it, you know? You got to do the learning aspect, and then also you got to experience life and, and apply. You got to go through the stages. If you skip a stage, you're going to feel it on the back end. Something's going to come up short on the back end because yeah. I'm not for the experience after, right? And basketball is an interesting thing. You have to learn on the fly. You got all these things being thrown at you. And then when the money's involved in the entertainment sector, now you got all those other entities coming in. So if you don't have the right support and cash, managers, assistants, agent, things like that, family, you know, faith, you're going to fall. You're going to crumble. A lot of guys 
came out, made a lot of money. You know, they were guns blazing out to shoot. They finished poor, though. Mm. Why? Because they didn't have that supporting cast, that OQP, the only quality people in place. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Yeah. And then it's amazing how the human brain works and how much it values progress. So if I come into the league and I make $15 million a year and the next year I make $7 million, not just like a gradual career path, but I make seven, then I'm going to feel a lot worse than someone who is making 100000 and feel like I'm progressing. Right. I'm getting better. It's, right. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then 10 years from now, the where you are now and where you're going. Like the, because I feel the the basketball, that was an amazing like foundation to give you the, the credibility to tell this, this American dream of this is how you rise. This is what happens when you get knocked down. And then this is how you, you conquer and this is how you fight back. And this is how you make it not about you, but about giving back and making the community a better place. So uh, five, 10 years from now, where do you see the Manchild brand and who's it helping and why is it important that it's doing what it's doing? I see the Manchild brand being franchised. I see the film going global. I see it impacting lives from kids, middle-aged people all the way up to adults, even elders, older people. I mean, and just being something for the agent, you know, that'll be talked about for a long time that, you know, I did it, did it right and gave back after, you know, the hardship and betrayal and, and disappointment that took place. I still, you know, was blessed to to be to be recreated in a sense internally inside out so I could make the impact, the everlasting impact that I need to make with the people that matter, the youth, because that's our future. I'll give you a couple rapid fire questions here. Who is the most interesting person you have ever met in your life? Dennis Robin. Why? Because everything I heard about him, my experience was completely different. To me, he's one of the best rebounders that I've ever seen. And I had a chance to play. We won a title in Long Beach, uh, Long Beach Jam in the ABA. And that's when he was getting ready to finish an NBA. Yeah, yeah, come back. Yeah. What are you better at today than you were a year ago? Patience. Yeah, it's uh, that emotional and mental muscle is being built up. And, you know, it's that constant practice daily that's helped that. So the patience. And what is one piece of advice you would have for an 18-year-old listening to this who comes from absolutely nothing, yet has high ambitions to make a large impact on the world? Believe in yourself when no one else do. Never let somebody tell you what you can't do. And keep God first. And then a second follow-up on that. How do you create that belief? Practicing that process every day. Hmm. You know, waking up in the morning, starting starting with prayer, meditation. Uh, listen to some inspirational in the morning to get you going. To start, get your brain firing on the right on the right wavelength before you even go to school or before you go to train or whatever your daily routine is. Start your start your day on the right track. No matter what happened the night before, start fresh. Yeah, that's great. And then. You're familiar with Stephen Covey, I'm guessing, right? He wrote a book called Primary Greatness. And one of the big ideas I took from that is how to always live life. And his word was crescendo, where you always live life where the best is yet to come. And just being with you today, Mr. Cotton, like that's, I feel like you're living that. Like it's really inspiring. And it's like just spending all your time building these skills and building relationships and finding a way to give back. And you're living life at Crescendo, right? Where on the internet or whatever, social media, it's like, oh, what happened to Shea Cotton? Doing better than 99% of other high scores, right? In terms of fame and, and notoriety. And then just from my experience with you today, I would say you're doing better than 99% of the population. And that is something for completely different, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to kind of bring this full circle, it's bigger than basketball. Right. It's right. not who you are. It's bigger. 100%. It's a humanitarian story, the film, Man Child, the Shea Cotton story. And the, the work I'm doing today is it's about paying it forward. You have to truly be a, a different type of person to be able to do this kind of work because you have to put others before yourself in that way where you're willing to give before you receive. And I'm fine with that because you know what? I need this. Like this is therapy for me too. Being around these kids, impacting them, seeing them respond, you know, hearing all the success stories that's to come and the ones that have already passed. I get excited about that because we're all going to keep growing and getting older. We keep waking up in the morning. So what do you want to be remembered as? And that starts with that process day to day, what you do with your time. Thank you for that. And Instagram handle is what? At Shea Cotton, S-C-H-E-A-C-O-T-T-O-N. And... 
the documentary comes out when and where can people get, receive access to it? It will be uh, independent. We will be screening it August 12th, uh, Warner Grand Theater, downtown San Pedro. And tickets will be available soon. We will be putting everything up on our social media handle. So stay tuned. YouTube channel is Manchild Doc, as well as Shea Cotton. So feel free to like and subscribe. Beautiful. And then hopefully we'll be getting you up at, in East Oakland and Castlemont the next week. Mr. Cotton, been an honor. Thank you, sir. Most definitely. Awesome. Appreciate it.